One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is the SNP's Joanna Cherry and this is the last of the three specials of the show recorded at the Edinburgh Festival. Every single one of them has been a pleasure and this one is phenomenal. Before I come on to uh, today's guest, just to let you know that my show Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right uh, has a few more days to run at the Edinburgh Festival if you're in Scotland but also I've added some dates in London for after the festival. So on the 18th of October, Tuesday the 18th, I'll be playing the Leicester Square Theatre and then I'm doing two nights at the Bloomsbury Theatre on Friday the 21st of October and on Friday the 28th of October. So three last chances to see the show all in London on the 18th, 21st and 28th of October and future guests at the political party when it returns to the Duchess in the autumn include on the 19th of September, Emily Maitlis and John Soper. What a night that's going to be. On the 3rd of October, Mick Lynch. On the 17th of October, Matt Hancock. On the 7th of November, David Dimbleby. And on the 5th of December, Rachel Reeves. More guests to be added and links to all those shows uh, you can find in the blurb, in the show notes, on whatever device you listen to this to. Joanna Cherry, then. What a phenomenal guest. Someone who really speaks from the heart, who speaks out on the issues that she really cares about. And that's a variety of things, even when it puts her on the opposite side to many members of her own party, many politicians in her own party, including the leadership of her own party. And she talks very openly here about her experience of some of the internal processes and the effects of that on how she's felt and the way that certain issues have been handled uh, within the party and and outwardly. So this is uh, very candid, uh, very open and very honest and very thoughtful. And Joanna Cherry is a formidable politician, uh, a major talent who obviously was crucial, as we talk about in this interview, uh, in uh, taking the UK government to court over many things, including the unlawful uh, prorogation of Parliament. So someone who's really used her talent uh, to hold uh, various governments and and various politicians to account. So uh, this is the last of these Edinburgh specials. They're always a thrill. I love recording them in Edinburgh. It's great. Obviously, I love doing the shows in London, but it's so cool to get to do it while I'm up here doing the festival as well. And all three of them, Gordon Brown, Anna Sauer and Joanna Cherry, uh, were phenomenal guests. Uh, So enjoy the final one uh, of this mini special Edinburgh run with Joanna Cherry. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the last political party recording at the Edinburgh Festival. Thank you very much for coming. Please give a huge welcome to Joanna Cherry. Thank you. Thank you. Are you used to that sort of reception these days? Well, not everywhere. <laughs> not maybe not at SNP conference. <laughs> oh, I thought SNP conference would be a happy place. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's good that we're having a conference in person. I think it's really important in a political party for people to get together and debate ideas. Yeah. And joking apart, I do have a lot of support in the party. I think it's just a wee minority that have caused my difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here in Edinburgh, a city very close to your heart. You've been the MP for Edinburgh Southwest since 2015. Mm. You're local. Yep. So first and foremost, are you enjoying the festival? I am. I'm really enjoying the festival. Uh, I've had a bit of time off. I've had visitors. And so I think when you've got somebody visiting from elsewhere, it makes you go out and see more shows than you would normally see. So I've seen a lot of things on the official festival, the Fringe, the Book Festival, and the Film Festival. And it's been great. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And it. As an Edinburgh person, you know, I was born and grew up here. One of the awful things about the pandemic was how dead and quiet the city was. And even when the festival came back last year, it was very scaled back. So it is incredible to see it back to its old self and to see so many visitors in the city and lots of local people out and enjoying stuff. The atmosphere has just been great. It is. I saw an amazing, uh, I think it's still running actually, it's sort of like an immersive piece of theatre. I think it's called a bin strike. And <laughs> it's amazing how close to the 1970s they've got it. I mean, whoever's remote controlling those rats is doing an incredible job because they're like, they're so big, but they look really real. Um, <laughs> I mean, it must, it must frustrate you a little bit as an MP for the area, as a, a local, to see when the world has returned to this city, to see it in such a state. It is, I, it does distress me to see the mess, but on the other hand, I understand that many people at the moment are at their wit's end about how to make ends meet. And, uh, you know, the bin workers in Edinburgh do a fantastic job. People are entitled to withhold their labour. I heard a... I think, I, I don't know, I think it was, um, I can't remember who said this recently, it might have been a Labour politician. If people can't withhold their labour, then they're effectively slaves. That's the only weapon people have. And, you know, we're looking at cost of living crisis. Most people were struggling already, to be frank, and now they're really, really struggling. So I'm not in the business of criticising the bin workers for withholding their labour. I just really hope a negotiated settlement can be reached soon so that I can get my rubbish picked up from outside my house. <laughs> Do you know what my main thought is? Maybe I'm like too political. I was like, in every by-election I ever fought against the Lib Dems, they would always do a litter pick. And I'm like, where are the Lib Dems with their, <laughs> their bin bags? They've got an army of volunteers that could have sorted this overnight. Well, they don't really have an army of volunteers. They're quite thin <laughs> on the ground in Scotland politically these days. So uh, I think you might be looking at another political party to do a litter pick. But then that might be strike, that might be strike breaking, you see. So it's, uh, you've got to watch yourself there. It would, it, it, obviously, one politician that's got themselves into a, a bit of a pickle with their own party over strikes is Keir Starmer, a fellow QC, and someone that you've been... Yeah. Obviously, you have your political differences with yeah. Keir Starmer, but I, I've always been struck by how complimentary you are of him in general. Yeah, I mean, I really respect Keir, um, and I respect him as a lawyer, you know, because I know he, was, he did fantastic work in Northern Ireland. He was a very effective director of public prosecutions. I think he had a very difficult role to play during Brexit because clearly the Labour Party was conflicted and split down the middle. That's one of the reasons that there was a Leave vote because Labour didn't play a strong enough role, in my opinion, in uh, the Remain campaign. And we didn't have a strong enough left-wing voice in the Remain campaign in England. We did, of course, in Scotland. And you know that's one of the big differences between England and Scotland at the moment that we might talk about in a minute. You know, We're still talking about Brexit up here. There was a big opinion poll in the Times showing that even... Even, even a higher percentage of Scots want to rejoin the EU than voted to remain back in, in 2016. 
And so I think, you know, we're still talking about Brexit up here. Keir can't even talk about it down south now. And that's one of the big differences. But I do respect Keir. We've had our disagreements. Obviously, there's that famous meme of me during one of the Brexit votes when I didn't get my indicative vote through. And I'm sitting beside my colleague, Philippa Whitford. We're like two wifeys at the bingo. And you just see my lips moving. And it's very clear that I'm saying effing Labour. Because I was really angry that Labour didn't whip their MPs to support my indicative vote, which was to say that if we didn't have a deal, the fallback position would be to revoke Article 50. But to be fair, I kind of understand why they couldn't support it, because they were in a very different, difficult position. But yes, I do support Keir, and one of the nice things for me about going into politics as a lawyer was that cross-party, the lawyers do talk in Parliament, and you know, right from the beginning, people like Dominic Grieve, who obviously was, was a Conservative, well, he probably still is, but he's kicked out of his party, which I think is disgraceful. You know, Dominic went out of his way to make me feel welcome in Parliament, to involve me in the cross-party legal groups, and he also nominated me to become a, an honorary bencher of the Middle Temple, which is a real honour at the English Bar, and really nice for me as, as a Scottish uh, advocate to be given that honour. So there is a kind of QC's club in, in Westminster. So there's you, <laughs> Dominic Grieve, Keir Starmer. Do you have, like, lunches together or stuff like that? <laughs> well, I mean, during, during Brexit, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes working. I think somebody's writing a book about that at the moment. We had a WhatsApp group that was a mixture of MPs from the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, uh, Caroline Lucas, uh, Plaid Cymru and the SNP and I really, myself and Philippa really led on that and we met every day and it wasn't just lawyers, it was people from all parties who were really wanted to see, you know, wanted to ameliorate the damage of the Brexit vote and most of us also supported the idea of having uh, a people's vote. Um, and so it wasn't just the lawyers and that, it was, it, it was cross-party, but it, it was an amazing experience for me because I got to work with people like Dominic Grieve and you know, senior Labour politicians uh, who had real experience of how Parliament works. And for me, as really a very new MP, somebody who was very new to politics, that was a real privilege. And I think, although we didn't ultimately succeed, we, did, we achieved various things, and really using that group, I was able to get people to support the case that stopped the unlawful prorogation, so Parliament did have a say. I think we failed to capitalise on that, but I think what I learnt from that was if you want to achieve anything in politics, you really have to work cross-party. You know, that's the big lesson of Scottish devolution. Devolution was delivered by cross-party working. Independence will only come with cross-party working. It can't just be about my party. We have to reach out to other parties. And I don't just mean the smaller independence parties. I also mean uh, members of other parties uh, who are the, what I call the persuadables or quietly support independence. And these people exist in the Labour Party and, and the Lib Dems. And that's why I've been very much an advocate in the SNP of having a second constitutional convention. And if you remember back to the First Minister's speech on Brexit Day, just before the pandemic in January 2020, she said that was something that she was going to do. So I'm looking forward to seeing that happen because I think that will be a really important development in building support for independence, as well as the case for independence. It's obviously roughly, well, over two and a half years since the First Minister made that speech. Mm. No sign of any of that yet. Well, in fairness to her, she promised a series of policy papers, 
Those were halted by the pandemic. We've had two, and we're expecting a number of other policy papers, which will cover some of the really important issues that my constituents, who are not yet convinced of the case for independence, want answered. Questions on the economy, questions on currency, questions on how long it would take Scotland to get back into the European Union, and questions on how we might manage a trade border with England if we are in the EU and England still insists on elongating itself from the single market and the customs union. So those policy papers are now starting to be produced. And also in that Brexit Day speech, the First Minister acknowledged the possibility of doing something that I've argued for many years, which was testing in court whether the Scottish Parliament has the competence to hold an independence referendum. And of course, we now know that's going to happen. So in fairness to Nicola Sturgeon, she has delivered on two out of the three, and I'm sure she will deliver on the Constitutional Convention. In fairness to me, these are all things that I've pushed for, and I'm really glad that they've been adopted as SNP policy. One of the things that, since both referendums, um, felt like a lot of people in the SNP were saying, once public support for, in, for independence is at 60%, that's the point at which we get the ball wrong. And I totally understand that. The last thing you want is to push for a second referendum and lose it. Now, I don't think that would kill the case stone dead because mm. we've already lost one and, 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 and here we are still talking about it. But th that, they seem to have sort of broken that golden rule and gone, well, actually, even though the dial hasn't shifted much, we're going to go for it anyway. Do you think that's a tactical or strategic error? Well, not necessarily, because there's still time to shift the dial. I was talking to a Conservative backbencher recently. I, w I won't say who it was, but this individual said to me that they thought um, if we could, if we, that is the independence movement and the SNP leading it, could get support for independence up to 60% in the opinion polls and stay there for a while, then the case for a second referendum would become irresistible, whether by a Conservative government or uh, Labour government. Um, and of course, we actually have, the case for our second referendum should be irresistible already because a precedent was created in 2011 when Alex Salmond won an outright majority that if there's a majority of pro-independence MSPs elected on a platform to deliver a second referendum, then the British government comes to the negotiating table. Of course, this government won't come to the negotiating table. This government is not interested in following the normal rules of fairness and decency that other governments follow. We've seen that from the way they've behaved over repeated attempts to break international law. So um, in, in, about getting to 60%, if you, again, if you look at that poll in the Times today, it shows um, what, what I think a number of polls have shown that support, opinion in Scotland is pretty much split down the middle. Um, and I think that, that poll also shows that both the election, whether it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, support for independence will go up a few points. Um, but support for independence went up to very close to 60 during the COVID pandemic. And part of that was because of people's confidence in Nicola Sturgeon's government to, uh, to deal with the consequences of the pandemic more effectively and to communicate advice more effectively than the Boris Johnson government. But in the long run, what will take us to 60% and beyond, I hope, is answering the crucial questions that people have. I meet a lot of people, not just constituents, but across Scotland, a lot of people who voted no in the last referendum, would like to vote yes now because they're very upset about Brexit. They're disgusted with not just Boris Johnson, the individual, but the way in which the Tory party has conducted itself generally in government. And they're frustrated by the fact that Scotland doesn't get the government it votes for at Westminster. But they still have some really pressing questions that they want answered. And it's incumbent upon my party to answer those questions. If we answer them, and that is the plan of these policy papers, then we should get up to 60% and stay there long enough. I mean, I would like to see us 
win the independence referendum by a comfortable majority. So we really take people with us. Part of the reason that Brexit was so fraught was the majority was so narrow. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I think there's, there's time to get us up there. And do you think that Scotland is ready for independence? As in the Scottish state and the Scottish government? Well, I've, you know, I'd like to answer that question in this way. There's no question that Scotland could become an independent nation and could thrive as an independent nation. We see lots of other small independent nations thriving in Western Europe and indeed in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the question for my party to answer is how we get from where we are now to there. Um, I think Scotland um, is ready for independence and I think Scotland could thrive as an independent country, but I think there are aspects of our public discourse that we need to address. And I'm on the record as being very concerned about the coarsening of public discourse, the abuse that a lot of politicians come in for, myself included, and the no debate culture, which I'm very much against, not just in relation to women's rights and lesbian and gay rights, but also in relation to uh, policy more generally. And you know, the, what people need to understand about the Scottish National Party, it was, it was founded by intellectuals and thinkers, people like Hugh McDermott, Compton Mackenzie. You rarely hear about the women. A lot of women artists were involved in the founding of the SNP. It was founded by people who liked discussing ideas and were outward looking. There is a small element in my party that don't like discussing ideas and have become very inward looking. And in the land of the Enlightenment, that is an extremely unhealthy development. And that's why I will consistently, as long as I'm in politics, I will consistently try and remind my party of its roots and fight against the narrowness that tries to shut down debate. Debate is good. Good policy is developed out of debate. Maybe one of the reasons that we've not developed our policies and independence as much as we should has been a lack of good debate, which has happened for a number of reasons, including the pandemic, but there's still time to ameliorate that. So if Scotland remembers its roots, if Scotland remembers itself as the cradle for the Enlightenment, if the SNP remembers its roots, its intellectual roots, then Scotland is ready for independence. But there's a little bit of work to be done. Obviously, the debate about sex-based rights is, is happening across the UK. It did seem to start here first and start specifically within the SNP first. Why, why is it that it's been more severe in Scotland than it has been in other parts of the UK? Well, I'm not sure that it did start in Scotland. Um, you know, gender identity theory and queer theory started with Michel Foucault and, and uh, Judith Butler in uh, the States. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was at university, queer theory was just starting to become fashionable and I found it superficially attractive, you know, as someone who, because of my sexuality, was perhaps a bit of an alternative person, maybe not as conventional as, as others. But uh, I've come to really strongly disagree with queer theory and gender identity theory. And uh, I think, you know, the problem is this, you know, gender is a social construct. Sex is real. You know, women suffer discrimination because of their biological sex. And to take that out of the debate uh, really uh, means that the debate, the debate we're having is not an honest or a realistic one. To try and uh, replace the concept of sex with gender 
means, as J.K. Rowling has said, without, without sex, there can be no same-sex attraction. So for lesbians like myself, for gay men, for bisexual people, you know, we fought for many, many years to have the right to be not, not to be discriminated against for being same-sex attracted. And now we're facing it all over again, being discriminated against for our same-sex attraction because lesbians won't, speak, won't sleep with men with people with penises. Now, that's kind of the definition of being a lesbian. Hello, you know, that's what it's all about, really. And, uh, you know, the fact, you know, I find it very exasperating that, you know, at the age of 56, I'm having to refight a battle that I thought was won in the late 80s and the 90s when Stonewall were in their heyday. And instead, the organization Stonewall has turned against people like me and uh, has you know, doesn't, doesn't want to talk about same-sex attraction any longer, it only wants to talk about gender identity theory. So I don't think that started in Scotland at all. I think what's happened in Scotland is that perhaps there has been, by a vociferous and influential group in both my party and the Green Party, and to a lesser extent Labour Party and the Lib Dems, um, a very enthusiastic um, espousal of gender identity theory without thinking it through properly. Now, I actually think we have very good um, sex, we have very good uh, equal rights protections across the United Kingdom for lesbian, gay and bisexual people and also for trans people. Trans people already have equal rights in the UK and somebody who believes in human rights, I would not want to do away with that. My concern is the enthusiastic espousal in Scotland of the idea that anyone should be able to uh, identify as the opposite sex and be treated as the opposite sex for most legal purposes without any gatekeeping at all. Now, anyone who's worked uh, in any area of life where safeguarding was essential knows that there is a problem there. I'm not really worried about trans people. I'm worried about people who will abuse the, the, abuse, uh, the ability to self-identify their sex without any gatekeeper. And I ought to be able to say that without being described as a bigot or a transphobe, because it's a perfectly reasonable uh, position to take. And why do you think it, this has happened with you know, a, a government led by Nicola Sturgeon, who is a feminist, or says she is, I don't know whether you agree or not. Um, at least two people clearly don't. Uh, is it an unthinking drift? Is it just the belief that, you that, that this is the way rights were going? Or yeah. is, is this out of some sort of ideological drive? I think. I I'm not going, I mean, I think, I think a lot of politicians, and you know, I'm not going to criticise Nicola for this, because it's a widespread problem in politics. It's a problem for Keir Starmer as well. A lot of politicians have embraced uh, gender identity theory as they thought it was the next great progressive thing to embrace. Uh, you know, gay rights were won, equal rights were won when we got equal marriage. And so I think some politicians were convinced that the next great battle was um, to, uh, for, for self-identification. And they didn't really think it through properly. And now they've found themselves in a position where they have espoused an argument which if they demurred from at all, they would end up with the same treatment that I've ended up with being called uh, transphobic. So they've kind of backed themselves into a corner. Now, the job of me and others is to try and find a way to get my colleagues out of the corner and so we can meet somewhere 
in uh, the middle. And, and I've tried to do that in the SNP. I advocated uh, back in uh, 2019 that we should hold a citizens' assembly on the issue of reform of the Gender Recognition Act. I have no problem with making it easier for trans people to get a gender recognition certificate. What I don't want is for anyone to be able to change their sex without any legal gatekeeping. And in Ireland, when there were very hot topics of debate, like uh, abortion, for example, it was a citizens' assembly that brought people from very entrenched sides of a debate together. It heard evidence, it considered the position, and there was abortion law reform in Ireland as a result of that, which brought most of the country with it. It was really a, quite an incredible uh, achievement in Irish politics. So I would have liked to have seen a citizens' assembly on the issue of gender recognition reform, where people like me, feminists like me, who are concerned about this, and there are many, I am inundated with letters from men and women who are concerned about this issue. Many of them working in organisations like the Scottish or the British government or rape crisis, or uh, other organizations like that who don't feel able to speak up because gender identity theory has so taken root in these organizations that if they express any concerns, they're branded to transphobe and face losing their job. So I've tried to make proposals about how we could, um, how, how we could try and get, uh, find, find a way forward here. And, and I'm afraid uh, my proposals have not been taken up and, and that's a matter of regret. And if you actually look, I mean, I've written a lot about this and I've spoken about a lot about it in Parliament. Um, to, to describe anything I've said as transphobic is wholly inaccurate. And I find it actually very offensive, particularly as many of these insults and epithets come from people who were not involved in the initial struggle for gay rights. You know, I came out in the late 80s I marched in the streets of Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester and London against Section 28 at a time when many people in the Scottish National Party were firmly on the fence. Many people, go back, Google it, look at who was on the fence about Section 28 when people like me were campaigning against it. So for those people now to turn around and call me a transphobe is deeply offensive. And I feel very, very strongly about this issue. You know, when I came into, when I got elected in 2015, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest with you. I sometimes feel that I popped out for a pint of milk during the independence referendum and then woke up as, a, as an SNP MP and I didn't really plan it. It kind of sort of slightly happened by accident. Um, and, you know, but I've always been, you know, I was brought up in a very nationalist household. And I've always been somebody who was interested and supported Scottish independence, even though I spent some time in the Labour Party when the SNP had lurched hopelessly to the right in, uh, in the 1980s. So, I, you know, I really feel I came into politics to achieve Scottish independence, not to be some kind of professional lesbian. But, um, <laughs> was anything wrong with professional lesbian? In fact, if anyone knows any, you could maybe introduce me to her, but... <laughs> but um, do you have to do a city and girls for that? <laughs> but joking apart, I didn't really want to make my sexuality an issue, and I thought all the battles had been won. And then this issue has crept up on me, and I have found myself instead, you know, I mean, Let's be honest, the, the battle for independence was kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, it beached for a while. I think it's back on again, and that, that's a good thing. But I found myself really what I consider in the fight of my life to defend women's rights and also to defend the right of lesbians like me to be same-sex attracted and also gay men to be same-sex attracted. And so I, I consider that a fight of my life, and I didn't expect it to happen, but it, it, it's a fight that's actually bigger than the issues it's about. 
because it's the fight about the right for people to be able to debate issues in a civilised fashion and for debate not to be shut down. And if we allow, you know, if the Labour Party and the Lib Dems and the Greens and my party, the SNP, allow this no-debate culture to continue to take hold across the United Kingdom, then even if you don't care about women's rights or lesbians' rights, it's going to, it's going to feed into other areas of our debate. And other things will happen that perhaps really matter to you in the audience that you won't be able to debate. You know, one of the most important freedoms we have in a democracy is the right of freedom of expression and the right of free speech. And it is terrifying to see so many major political parties afraid to speak up for freedom of expression. And so I think it's, it really is, it's an existential fight really for our political and democratic soul. And that's why I have no intention of shutting up about it, despite the best efforts of some of my colleagues. Every party has its wings, left and right, and mm. they, they exist at different times in different debates. The SNP, from the outside, can appear sometimes different. You were elected in 2015. I think I'm right in saying that all Westminster uh, members of parliament had to sign effectively a sort of loyalty clause agreeing to not criticise the party. I mean, for a public that's used to seeing the hard left of the Labour Party against the Blairites and the Eurosceptics and the pro-Europeans and the Tory party, is it fair to say the SNP is unique in the sense that well, it tries to closet that dissent? We do have a rule that we're not supposed to criticise party policy or um, each other uh, in public. <laughs> if you want to look through Twitter over the last few years, you will have seen many members of the SNP, including parliamentarians, uh, calling me um, a transphobe, uh, a bigot, um, uh, calling for me to have the whip removed, uh, and worse, you know, everybody, most people will know that a member of the SNP threatened to rape me and, and went to court and was convicted of that, and nobody in my party has ever condemned it, because I presume people are afraid to condemn someone threatening to rape a transphobe in case they themselves are called transphobic. So the rule is repeatedly breached, and, um, and it seems breached without consequences, so perhaps we have to revisit the rule. Uh, I've come in for a fair amount of criticism for diverging from party policy on this issue of self-identification. But in actual fact, the SNP, has, the SNP conference has never passed a motion to support self-identification. The SNP manifesto supported reform of the Gender Rec Recognition Act, which I have no problem with. The SNP manifesto did not say that they would introduce self-identification, and it promised to discuss, it, to discuss this, these issues properly with women's groups and lesbian and gay groups. So I haven't really broken party policy on this issue. But in the last parliament, two of my MP colleagues were very critical of the SNP's decision to support a people's vote. Uh, they campaigned against it. Uh, they frequently spoke in parliament against a people's vote. They wrote against party policy and they voted against party policy. They were not removed from their front bench positions. I was because I have dared to stick up for women's rights and lesbian and gay rights. And when you're defrocked from a front bench position in that way. How did you deal with it, and, and who was it that delivered the news? Well, I, I had a tip-off three days in advance from somebody who shall remain nameless, which I was very grateful for, because the news was only delivered by Ian Blackford ten minutes before he made the announcement of his new front bench, but I had time to prepare myself for what was going to happen. Um, 
I think what I found most upsetting about it was the unfairness of my treatment. You know, as I say, other colleagues had openly disagreed with party policy and not been promoted and not been demoted. Um, so I, that was upsetting. And also the fact that there was no acknowledgement of any of the work I'd done over the last few years before. It was like I had been, uh, well, I suppose, cancelled, just erased from SNP history. I'm not the first person in the SNP that that's happened to. Um, recently, but it, it was very upsetting um, and bruising because, you know, in 2015, when I was elected, Angus Robertson asked me to take on the briefs for both, both justice and home affairs. It was a huge amount of work. You know, I made my maiden speech from the front bench. I worked very hard. I like to think I'm the only person in the SNP who's ever out with an election successfully defeated Boris Johnson. That's when I, when I led the prorogation case. <laughs> and. And, you know, many of the SNP initiatives during Brexit were, were led by me. And, and for there to be no acknowledgement of any of that. And, you know, in the 2019 election, one of the reasons the SNP did so well was because of the stance we'd taken on Brexit and the prorogation. And that was all over our manifesto, as was my picture. And so to be sacked from the front bench a year later without any acknowledgement of anything I'd done was an extremely upsetting and, and bruising experience. And then that very same evening, as I say, I received a, very se a series of very threatening messages from a, someone who turned out to be a party member, threatening to rape me. And that was very upsetting for me and, and, and my, my then girlfriend. And it was very difficult to deal with. Um, and the lack of support from my colleagues was very difficult to deal with. On the other hand, in many ways, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, being sacked from the SNP front bench, because it, it's, well, seriously, because it's, it's given me more time to concentrate on my constituency, because you know, when you've got a double brief on the front bench, it's a lot of work and a lot of preparation. So I've had more time to spend and concentrate on the constituency. Um, I'd always been interested in my work on the Joint Committee of Human Rights, and uh, Harriet Harman and my colleagues in the Joint Committee of Human Rights elected me as deputy chair of the committee after I lost my front bench position. And now I've been elected as chair of the committee, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd still been on the front bench, and when Harriet's husband very sadly died unexpectedly in January, I was able to deputise her for her while she was on her bereavement leave, and that work really uh, matters to me. And it's also made it easier for me to continue to say what I think about women's rights and lesbian and gay rights. And if anyone thought that they were going to shut me up by demoting me from the front bench and by staying silent when people threatened me, then I think I've proved the exact opposite. So at least I hope I have. <laughs> people, people might be shocked to hear at the lack of support you've had from, from colleagues uh, and, and from elsewhere. So just to be clear, when you've received... I mean, I've seen some of the stuff you get online. It's as severe as it gets. Mm. Ian Blackford, Nicola Sturgeon have never picked up the phone, never reached out and said, are you OK? I'm sorry no, you're getting all this stuff. never. I'm sorry to have to say that. I'm going to have to answer your question honestly. No, they haven't. Why do you think that is? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> but it does seem odd that, I think for, particularly for Nicola Sturgeon, given her public image, that as a defender of women's rights, oh, maybe some people might disagree with that, but, <laughs> but some people could... might expect that Nicola Sturgeon was the sort of person that would pick up the phone. I think, you know, what's happened basically, if I can take it a bit wider, is we, as a result of the no debate culture, we have created an, an area in our political discourse where it's all right for women to be threatened, have death threats and rape threats, and people won't defend them. And I think 
perhaps because, as I said earlier, people are afraid maybe if they defended me or supported me, they themselves would be accused of being uh, transphobic. Well, I hasten to add, I, I, I'm not transphobic. Um, and it would be a bit surprising if I was, given uh, my history. Um, so I can't really answer that question, but there has been, I mean, it's, it's evident there's been no public support and there's been no support behind the scenes. There has been support from many members of the party and many other parliamentarians, but there's been no support whatsoever from the leadership. And, and I don't understand why you would have to ask them. As I say, I think maybe they are afraid if they were seen to be supporting me, they would be tarred with the same brush. And it's just a very unfortunate, unfortunate state of affairs that we um, have got ourselves into. But privately from colleagues, I have a lot of support. And, um, you know, I think a minority of people, probably what they most wanted me to do was, was to leave the SNP, but I have no intention of, of leaving the SNP. Um, you know, from my childhood, I went to meetings of the party with my dad and, um, you know, I gave up quite a successful career to be an SNP MP and I like to think I've put a lot of time and effort into it. And, you know, politics is a long game. I think this era will pass. I think the era of no debate is passing. We've had many very, very important court cases. We've had Maya Forstatter's victory, Alison Bailey's victory, women and men who lose their jobs as a result of their gender critical views or their same sex attraction now know that they can, uh, you know, they can go to an employment tribunal and uh, they can be vindicated and get, get their job back or get damages. And, and you know, the, these findings on the protections for free speech and gender critical beliefs and same-sex attraction in, in the law across the United Kingdom, they don't just apply to employment law situations, they apply to membership organizations like political parties. So there's a member of the Green Party at the moment taking his, court, his party to court for the way that they've discriminated against him. So the political parties that have espoused this theory are going to have to review their practices um, going forward. And so, you know, I'm confident that there'll be a place for me in the future of the SNP, although perhaps not in the immediate future. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Some members of the Westminster SNP group have had the support uh, of the leadership. Uh, Patrick Grady seemed to get more support from me and Blackford than you did. When you hit, I don't know if you were present at the meeting from which the recording was leaked. No, I wasn't actually. I was leading a delegation of the Joint Committee on Human Rights to Strasbourg and I was very glad that I wasn't present at that meeting because there was a very um, unpleasant witch hunt into who had done the recording and I know that some of my detractors suggested it was me, although I'd like to think that people would know me well enough to know that I'm not somebody who does things clandestinely. If I think there's a problem, I will speak out about it in the hopefully in an appropriate way. Although Fraser, my office manager, who's here today, uh, he's had to deal with some of my misjudged tweets in the past. He once, he once hurled himself off a London bus to rush back to the office to deal with a Twitter storm that I created by liking a tweet that I probably shouldn't have liked and, and left his suitcase behind. In a, so, you know, I, I, don't al- I don't always make my intervention. I haven't always in the past made my interventions as judiciously as I hope I will going forward, but I'm open about what I think. So I'm not the kind of person who would clandestinely record a meeting. So, no, I wasn't present at that meeting. No. And when you heard the recording, what, what did you think? <sighs> I thought... I was very... Well, personally, I was very upset, actually, because I thought it was interesting to hear exhortations of support for a colleague that had been found guilty of sexual harassment, but no exhortations of support for a female colleague who'd been threatened with rape by a party member had occurred. So I I did take it rather personally, but on the broader issue, um, I thought it was most unfortunate. The whole episode was most unfortunate. I think uh, allegations of sexual harassment should be taken seriously, no matter who the allegation is made against. Uh, I think people are innocent till proven guilty and that people shouldn't lose their jobs simply or people shouldn't be vilified, as Alex Salmond has, simply because an allegation is made against them. There should be due process and then there should be an investigation and then the outcome of the investigation should be respected. So the outcome of that investigation didn't seem to be being respected. And I also believe in a quality of arms, a quality of treatment rather, and fairness. And there was rather a contrast, there has been rather a contrast in relation to somehow some, into into how some allegations of sexual harassment have been treated in my party in relation to others. And clearly, Everyone's entitled to a fair hearing, but all all serious allegations should be investigated and the outcome should be respected. Um, I was very, I'm still very annoyed about the failure to respect the outcome of the acquittal of Alex Salmond. Alex Salmond was acquitted of the charges made against him. And I think politicians should respect jury verdicts in the same way that politicians should have respected the Colston jury verdict. In, uh, in Bristol, I thought it was very unfortunate when conservative politicians attacked that jury. We need to we have a jury system and we need to respect juries. Juries hear all the evidence and the jury heard all the evidence in the Salmon case and they acquitted him on all the charges. And often when you hear political discourse or read the newspapers in Scotland, you could be forgiven for thinking that Mr. Salmon was convicted of all the charges. And I think, I think that's very wrong. So I think the outcomes of investigations have to be respected and when allegations are made, they have to be respected. People who make allegations should be supported 
during that process. In law, we call them the complainer because they're not the victim till there's been a finding that their allegation uh, is, is true. So, yes, clearly we have fallen down in our procedures in the SNP, and I think we need to review how we deal with complaints. Um, yeah. So, in the 80s, you'd had a period of time in the Labour Party. You're then going through a difficult time with your own party. You've got friends in various other parties. In the last few years, has it ever crossed your mind, either I'll join another party or, I mean, for someone who loves independence, sit as an independent? <laughs> Um, well, just to explain, when, when, I, when I was growing up, I used to go to SNP meetings with my dad. And I remember going to a meeting in Flora, Stevens, Flora Stevenson's primary school down in Cumley Bank in the 70s when Gordon Wilson was leader. And, you know, from a young age, I wanted to be an MP. And I told oh, Gordon, I think I know <laughs> one of those ones. Uh, I think I must have been about nine or ten. I told Gordon Wilson I wanted to be an MP. And he told me, he gave me very good advice. He said, go away and get a proper job. And, and get a job and, and come back in your 40s when you've got something to offer the party. Now, I didn't do that intentionally, but I think that's actually what, what happened. But, but just to explain my hinterland in the party, so then I joined, I joined the Young Scottish Nationalists when they were first set up in Edinburgh in 1980. And in happier times when Ian and Blackford and I were, when Ian Blackford and I were in better terms, Ian found in his attic the minutes of the first meeting of the Young Scottish Nationalists in Edinburgh. And on the committee were Ian, myself and John Swinney. I would have only been 14 in 1980. So I go back quite a long way in the SNP, but I left the SNP when they threw the 79 group out. And I think there's a bit of a lesson there for the SNP in um, current times, for people who are interested in politics. Uh, after um, the failed devolution referendum in the late 70s, after Thatcher came to power, after the SNP went from having 11 MPs to only two MPs, there was quite a lot of infighting in the party and a group was set up called the 79 Group, led by people like Alex that wanted to take the party to the left and they were expelled from the party. And the party went into the political wilderness for a long time when it moved to the right and didn't come back until Alec became leader again and adopted a gradualist approach towards um, independence. Alex often uh, described nowadays as some sort of independence extremist. It was Alex Salmond who convinced the SNP to adopt uh, the gradualist approach. But, but many of us were very disillusioned and went off and joined the Labour Party. I didn't see any relevance for a right-wing narrow SNP in the 80s when it seemed to me the main fight was against Thatcher. So that's the time. So when I was here as a student back in the 80s, I was a member of the Labour Club. And then, you know, I got to know people like Pat McFadden and Susan Deacon really well. And they're people, Labour politicians, who I still very much um, respect. So I didn't, I didn't start voting SNP again until the mid-90s and I didn't rejoin the party until 15 years ago. So I'm not really a tribal politician. Like, I've always believed in, ho in independence and home rule, and I have an affection for the SNP just as well, because, you know, it's been difficult. The last few years have been really difficult for me, but I have an affection in it, and, and my father has been a great supporter of mine. I don't really know what I'd do without my dad, and he's just told me to bide my time, which I think has been very good advice. But I have thought, there have been times when it's crossed my mind. You know, if I lived in England, I would definitely be a member of the Labour Party. I have a great affection for the Labour Party. After independence, I think the parties will realign themselves and I would probably end up in a sort of Scottish Democratic Left Party or a Scottish Labour Party after, after independence. Um, the ALBA Party was not for me. I think I understand what Alex Salmon's trying to do with ALBA. It's a bit like, uh, you know, clearly there are people who feel that the SNP's approach isn't working and that you need some sort of insurgent nationalist party. 
I don't think Scotland's ready for a, a Sinn Féin-style insurgence. I don't mean violence. I mean a more radical independence party like happened in Ireland when the constitutional nationalists became irrelevant and Sinn Féin took over. I don't think Scotland's in that position at all. In my judgment, the party that will lead Scotland to independence is the SNP, but it needs to work with other parties. Other parties, like the titans that are the Scottish Greens. I mean, <laughs> how do you feel about those great minds being at the heart of the Scottish Government? Well, I recently, as people may know in the audience, you might know Matt, I recently uh, joined forces with Robin Harper, who used to be the leader of the Scottish Green Party and um, obviously took the Greens into Parliament, you know, was the first elected uh, Green politician in Scotland and is someone for whom I know because he lives at, near my, in my constituency, close to my constituency and we have a lot of cons people in common. People have a huge affection for Robin in Edinburgh. He was a fantastically well-respected teacher at Boroughmuir High School. And he and I obviously are, were on opposite sides of the independence debate because Gordon's not, uh, Robin's not pro-independence. But Robin got in touch with me to express his concern about what's happened in his party and what's happening in Scotland about the debate about women's rights and to say that he supported me and could we maybe have a joint initiative together. I got a beautiful handwritten letter from him earlier this summer when I got back from holidays. So we met and had coffee and it was the first time I'd actually met him. And so we, we intend to take a series of initiatives together showing that there are members of both the Green and the SNP the Green Party, Scottish Green Party and the SNP who are unhappy about the no debate culture and feel that there are many issues surrounding the debate about gender identity theory that need to be talked about. And we wrote jointly to Jason Leach, the National Clinical Director in Scotland, to express our concerns about the fast tracking of children into medical and surgical interventions when they express distress about their sex rather than giving them uh, sort of supportive therapy before they make life-changing decisions, irreversible medical decisions. And our concerns about that arose out of a, re a review of the Tavistock Clinic in London by uh, Hilary Cass, a very distinguished paediatrician, who has expressed concerns about the way children who have experienced distress about their sex are, are being treated. So. Um, Obviously, Robin and I have discussed these issues in private. We both have concerns about what's happened in our party. I thought the Green Party's, Scottish Green Party's treatment of Andy Whiteman was appalling. And, um, and you know, obviously I've got to know Andy because Andy and I were um, litigants in, in the case that established that it was possible for uh, the United Kingdom to unilaterally revoke Article 50. I got to know Andy during that. Andy and I don't agree, don't agree about everything, but I have immense respect for the way he conducts himself as a politician, he conducted himself as a politician, for his work on land reform, um, and I, I thought he was the, mo the strongest and most valid, the strongest and most well-respected voice the Greens had in the Scottish Parliament, the author of many, many interesting political initiatives, and to see him hounded from his party for daring to stick up for women's rights, um, and even when he had left politics, there were activists in the Scottish Green Party who were trying to prevent Andy from being able to get a job. I mean, what has happened to our country that that sort of behaviour is going on and is not being condemned by political leaders? So um, I have huge respect for the Greens. If it wasn't for the Greens, climate change wouldn't be at the top of the agenda. I think Caroline Lucas is a great parliamentarian. I had huge respect for Robin Harper and huge respect for Andy Whiteman. But 
In a way, I understand why Nicola Sturgeon brought them into government to show that there was a, a, a majority within uh, Holyrood for, for independence. Mm. I get that sort of strategic move. But she could have formed a government without them and got stuff through. Are there frustrations within the SNP that, that Scottish Greens, given the sorts of issues that you and others have with them, are also taking ministerial briefs that, that talented SNP MSPs well, could be holding? I'm not sure about that. You'd really have to ask my colleagues at Holyrood about that. Um, I mean, I think I understand why Nicola formed the coalition agreement. It, it does demonstrate very clearly uh, that there is a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament. And, uh, you know, the Greens have won those seats legitimately under the system we have. Um, and, uh, you know, they've maybe not got nearly as many votes as other people have had to get in order to win a seat. But that's the system we have. You know, that's how the SNP built up our position in the Scottish Parliament was initially winning list seats. Now we have a lot of first-past-the-post seats. And I think, you know, the Green voice is a very important voice in Scottish and British politics. I think I would just like to see the Scottish Greens spend more time talking about climate change and the environment and less time trying to shut down women and gay people from talking about our rights. But again, you know, and I'm told this by friends in the Scottish Green Party, and I still have friends in the Scottish Green Party, and I have one in particular who messages me regularly, many of the Scottish Green Party membership think that as well. You know, they want, to, they want their party to be talking about its raison d'etre, environment and climate change, not not really having consistent, constant witch hunts against anyone who disagrees with the orthodoxy and gender identity theory. Obviously, you're Westminster-based. Do you, do you look at Holyrood as a place you would like to be one day? Do you think it's a better standard of debate? I mean, obviously, it's closer to home for you. You'd, you'd like an independent Scotland, so yeah. I guess in some way you might see a future. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be in opposition for the rest of my life because I want to actually achieve something in politics. You can achieve some things in opposition, but the way you really achieve, as you know yourself, from your espousal of new labour, the way you achieve political change is to get into government. So, of course, I would love, I would love to be in the Scottish Parliament. I would love to be in an, in an independent Scottish Parliament. I would love to be a minister in government affecting change. I would love to do that. Having said that, where I am at the moment, you know, Westminster has many flaws, but it also has some good points. I think it has one of the best things about the Westminster system is the committee structure. You know, the select committees that are chaired by independently appointed chairs, appointed not by the whips as they are at Holyrood, but by their peers. And so that's only been the position for the last decade or so at Westminster, but it makes the select committees very powerful. And you'll, you'll often hear uh, Tory backbenchers who are select committee chairs like Tom Tuganat absolutely panelling their government on the Today programme in the morning. And I think that's a healthy thing about Westminster. And I'd like to see that replicated at Holyrood. And behind the scenes, I've been doing some work in the SNP with Mike Russell and others about what a transitional constitution might look like for an independent Scotland. Now, I believe the constitution of an independent Scotland should be written by the people of Scotland, people who live in Scotland, and that we should do that through a, a constituent assembly or a constitutional convention. But we'll need to have an interim constitution to get us through the period of after the vote and through into independence. And one of the things I've very much been pushing in my work behind the scenes is that we need more checks and balances in the Scottish Parliament. We need stronger committees with more independent chairpersons. There are some very good chairs 
at Holyrood, but I'd like to see them elected by the backbenchers rather than appointed uh, by the whips. I think in the long run, Scotland needs to look at whether we want a unicameral or a bicameral system. Do we want a revising chamber? Obviously, we don't want to ape the House of Lords, but we might want to have an elected uh, secondary revising chamber. I think we definitely need a constitutional court, not just spatchcocked onto the existing court, but I'd like to see a separate constitutional court set up. Maybe you could like the South African constitutional court post-apartheid one, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could, but you could have people, you could have academics, people like Albie Sachs in South Africa, Supreme Court judges. You can maybe think about having distinguished academics on the Supreme Court, as well as people who'd come up through the more traditional uh, litigation lawyer routes. So I'm very interested. I'm very interested in being in the Scottish Parliament. I'm very interested in having uh, executive power and being part of a Scottish government. I don't see it as something that's going to happen in the short term for me, but I'd like to think it might happen in the long term. And obviously, if you're interested in being in the Scottish Government, why not one day lead a Scottish Government? Well, I know people are speculating about what will happen when Nicola Sturgeon stands down. Which is um, going to be when exactly? <laughs> I mean, I, obviously, I don't know. I don't know when she'll stand down, but... Um, when, we, when would you like it to be? Well, <laughs> I think that's a matter for Nicola to decide. Um, I mean, I'm just a lowly backbencher at Westminster. I don't have a view in, on these matters, but... Um, not publicly. I, I, think, I think when Nicola stands down, it would be healthy for the SNP to have a leadership election, because we've not had one since 2004. We're kind of overdue one. Um, and that election should not be about personalities. It should be about ideas and policy and strategy. And I think that would be a very healthy exercise for my party. Clearly, the person who takes over from Nicola will have to be a member of the Scottish Parliament because the SNP leader has to be capable of being First Minister. Clearly, that's not me. So I'm not a candidate for the SNP leadership in the short term. I wouldn't rule myself out in the long term. Why would I? Why would I have left my career and gone into politics unless I was ambitious to achieve change? And the way you achieve change is by being in government and possibly leading a government. I don't think you would expect a man like Ian Blackford to rule it out. So perhaps, you know, why would you expect a woman like me uh, to rule it out? So I'm not ruling it out. It's something I would consider in the long term, but I don't think it's something that I can really, I see as happening in the short term. And just on other parties, have people from other parties ever approached you? Have Labour people ever said, oh, you should join us? I've had approaches from people in the Labour Party and people in the Alba Party, yes. Tories? No. <laughs> I wouldn't go there in a month of Sundays. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult because some Conservative politicians have been, are, are extremely good on free speech issues and have been extremely supportive on the women's rights and gay rights. Think about Kemi Badenoch, for example. But I would strongly disagree with Kemi on uh, economic policy. Uh, European policy, foreign policy, you know, it appalls me that all the leaders, all the candidates for the Tory party leadership supported the Rwanda policy. It's just such an appalling policy. So, and also, you know, I'm half Scottish, half Irish. I'm never going to be interested in the British Conservative and Unionist Party. <laughs> um, although some Daily Mail journalist was maliciously spreading a, a, a rumour that I was going to defect to the Tories. That will never happen. Um, but I have been approached by people in both the Labour Party and the Alba Party. But as I say, I'm staying put. Okay, so when Keir Starmer and Alex Salmond have approached you, <laughs> what sort of thing do they say? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying who approached me, but I, there have been approaches, yeah. 
And on the Labour side. Every day on Twitter, somebody from the Alba Party <laughs> tells me I should defect to the Alba Party. But they need to understand that I have a lot of support in the SNP. The people who've made my life in the SNP are a small but made my life a misery, are a small but vociferous minority. And the thing that annoys them most is the fact that they can't bully me out of the party. So of course I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay in and fight my corner. So some of your parliamentary colleagues you do get on with. I mean, yes. it, it's important to, because... Uh, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be total misery. Yeah, no, I have... I mean, I'm very... Philippa Whitford and I share office space. I'm very good friends with Philippa, very good friends with uh, Tommy Shepherd. I'm um, very good friends with Carol Monaghan, Doug Chapman, Patricia Gibson. These are all people who... Uh, Marion Fellows, uh, Chris Stevens, who's um, our... Uh, our sort of trade union rep at Westminster. You know, he's a fantastic parliamentarian. So I'm probably leaving out people, but I have, you know, I'm very, Ronnie Cowan, I'm very good friends. I've got very good friends in the group. Uh, equally, it's a matter of record that other people in the group have said some pretty appalling things about me. Sometimes to your face. Not to my face. Never to my face. Never? Never to my face. Only on Twitter or behind my back. Never to my face. And have you ever confronted them about it? I don't want to get too deep into no. that, really. Um, I mean, clearly, what I will say is I have made complaints about my treatment through the appropriate channels, and I would hope that in due course they might be addressed. I guess the benefit, if you can call it that, of having spoken out in the manner in which you have, is that it has actually allowed you to make friends in other parties and, and new bonds form yeah. and obviously uh, people like Rosie Duffield and a whole load of feminist authors that are, and JK Rowling and, and you've got this... Yeah, but these, these, these outrageous lunches that happen without male permission. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they look like great fun. Yeah, they are. <laughs> as a man, obviously, I've never been So far been as I can remember them, they're usually quite boozy. But... <laughs> but that looks, you know, that in a way, that's a very um, heartwarming thing that for many years the Constitution looked like the single most divisive thing in Scotland and across the UK on Brexit <clears> as well. But beyond those, you know, one day the dividing line is something else and actually other issues evolve where you can then rebuild yeah. bridges across yeah, that mean constitutional that has, divides. That's been good. And I remember not long after I was elected as an SNP MP, I, I bumped into Susan Deacon, who I'd been at university with. People will remember she was a, a minister in one of the first Labour administrations, devolved administrations, a very able politician who perhaps didn't get the best treatment from her party. Um, I bumped into Susan and we spoke about how good it would be if we could find a way to get Labour and SNP women together because we have really have so much more in common than that which divides us, to use Joe Cox's phrase. And at that time, we didn't really see a way that we could do it. But as a result of um, the fight to preserve women's sex-based rights, uh, there has been a lot of behind-the-scenes work between women in the SNP and women in the Labour Party, and I feel I've made some really good cross-party alliances. Um, and I, I mean, I had good cross-party alliances before I stuck my head above the parapet to defend women's rights, because I'd formed them during Brexit. But really, I wouldn't have got through the last three years with, with you know, uh, repeated attacks on my integrity, repeated suggestions that I was transphobic, you know, death threats, um, rape threats that have resulted in court proceedings. There's another case going to court at the moment, another death threat. I wouldn't have got through that if it wasn't for my cross-party and beyond sisters and some men, but it's me mainly sisters, who have really supported me. And I've made some really, fan some really fantastic new friendships 
uh, through all of this. So in many ways, I don't really regret it. There's something really pleasing about standing up for what you really believe in. And, uh, you know, there were times, it's on the record, there were times when I thought I would have to leave politics because it was being, my life was being made so unpleasant and um, it really was getting close to being intolerable. But as a result of the su support I've received, I've decided not to, and I'm really glad I decided not to, because the worst thing you can do with bullies is to give in to them. And there has been a determined attempt to bully me out of politics, and I've stayed in, and I feel very proud about that. Well. This has been absolutely phenomenal, and it is, it is absolutely flown by. Before uh, I let you go, one last question. What, what do you think, looking into the future, what do you think is more likely that one day Joanna Cherry becomes First Minister of an independent Scotland, or these bins get collected before the end of the week? <laughs> I am not going to answer that question, <laughs> Matt. I, you know, it, it's lovely to speak with you and... Um, you know, I, I, one of my worries about today was that I would become so relaxed because I'm so fond of you that I would say something I shouldn't say. And I have to remind myself that many of our very assiduous and hardworking Scottish political journalists, if not in the audience today, uh, will be listening to the podcast later. And I've reminded myself to superimpose upon your face, for example, the face of Tom Gordon, a very hardworking <laughs> journalist from The Herald, uh, who will no doubt be picking over anything I say today to see if it uh, can make a story. So I, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> Um, all I will say is I, I plan to stay in politics and I really, you know, I, I remember John Smith's great phrase that all he asked for was the opportunity to serve his country. That's all I really want. Joanna Cherry. Before we let Joanna go, please, a huge thank you to everyone at the Gilded Balloon at Avalon for making today possible. To all of you for being such a wonderful audience. My show is on at the Pleasance Courtyard every night at 8pm, but ladies and gentlemen, a huge thank you to a phenomenal guest, Joanna Cherry! Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there you go, Joanna Cherry. And it was a remarkable interview because, obviously, one of the things that really strikes you is not many senior or not many SNP parliamentarians really go against the party line publicly uh, and obviously there are reasons for that that we discussed in the interview but compared to the Labour Party I mean compared to all the other major parties really where we're used to seeing a level of internal dissent displayed publicly I mean I get that there's an optimum amount if you're too divided and you're in civil war as both the Labour Party and the Tory Party have been for large parts of their history uh, that can cause major political problems but Throughout this interview, I think it, it really struck me, and you could tell that it struck people in the audience. I'm sure it's something that you will have considered. It is rare to hear a major SNP politician effectively go against the leadership or even disagree, even to a small extent. Now, there are pros and cons to that, but it does strike you. You think, actually, this is, this is something pretty rare. And as a result, it's, it's something precious. So uh, it was a phenomenal uh, interview with Joanna. Uh, and of course, you're dealing with a QC who is highly intelligent, who's very canny, who's highly skilled. And even in, what's refreshing about all these interviews is, and it came through in the Anasawa interview, even in the ferocious world of UK and Scottish politics, people can still pay tribute to politicians inside and outside their own party. You know, across all these divides, there is still 
at a level of mutual respect for people. And I think for all its harsh contentions, it, it, contentions it's nice to know that, that that still exists. So uh, what a great way to end this mini Edinburgh run of the political party. But I shall be back in London uh, with the show on the 19th of September with Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. And of course, doing the show, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. And thank you to all of you that have come to see me at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and to all of you that have brought your children of various ages. <laughs> and if uh, you don't live in uh, Edinburgh or Scotland, but you do live in London, or no matter where you live, of course, have a day out in London. Uh, three extra shows on the 18th of October at the Leicester Square Theatre, and then two nights at the Bloomsbury on the 21st and 28th of October. So I'll see you there. Thanks for coming to the show. If you're still to come to see me in Edinburgh, I'll see you there, and I'll see you soon. ta -ra.